Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my co-host, Ellen McGirt. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Dan Schulman, the CEO of payments giant PayPal, and someone who has been out front on so many of the big issues we talk about here on Leadership Next, from the racial wealth gap, to ending gun violence, to building a better, more inclusive democracy. Yeah, absolutely, Ellen. I mean, when I think back six months ago when we uh, started this podcast talking about the changing rules of business leadership, Dan was definitely one of the people I had in my mind. I mean, he was early in recognizing that capitalism needed a reboot and that CEOs had to do more than just make money for their shareholders. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's get started. Dan, welcome to Leadership Next. Thanks so much, Alan. And thanks, Ellen, also as well for having me. We have a lot to talk about, but let me just start by getting you to give us an update on your business since the pandemic started. How is PayPal doing? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, Alan, obviously the business is doing quite well. We had a record quarter across almost every uh, important metric in our business. But I think what's really interesting is why is that happening? And I think what we're seeing uh, due to the pandemic, is an increase in digitization across almost every industry. Uh, you're seeing that in healthcare with uh, telemedicine. You're seeing it in education with remote learning. You're seeing it in retail right now as retailers are looking towards a digital first strategy, uh, even over and above a location first based strategy. And of course, Digital payments is a crucial part of that. We're seeing consumers, maybe up to 40% plus of them, no longer want to handle cash. People don't want to go into stores and touch keypads anymore. And so across both online and offline, you're seeing an explosion uh, in the use of digital forms of payment. And you think that's going to continue? Or are we are we witnessing the end of cash? You know, I think a lot of people have been wrong over the years in predicting the demise of cash. I don't want to uh, be uh, one more of those that is wrong around that. But I do think clearly that you are seeing an acceleration in the use of digital payments away from cash. Cash will be with us for a long time, but I think we've leapfrogged three to five years in the last three to five months in in the use of both forms of e-commerce and digital payments. So I know you think a lot about the people who are left behind, left out, and excluded. What does this digital, digitized world mean for huge populations who are already underbanked under-resourced, underemployed? How do you see that problem being solved? The pandemic, which initially started as a health crisis, obviously cascaded and became an economic crisis. And then I'd argue it became a psychological crisis as well as a social uh, crisis, maybe even a political crisis, maybe five different attributes uh, to the pandemic. But what the pandemic exposed is sort of the soft white underbelly of our economy. We've had these problems in our economy for a long time. Something like two thirds of Americans struggle to make ends meet at the end of the month. 
And that's before the economic crisis associated with the pandemic. You have something like 70 million adults in the U.S. that are underserved by the financial community at large. And last year, there was somewhere in excess of $140 billion spent on fees and what I would consider to be unnecessarily high interest for those 10% of the population that really don't have access to financial services and just do basic things like convert currency from one form to another, take a check and convert it to cash, pay a bill, send money to a loved one. That's ridiculous. Um, With technology, we ought to be able to address some of those inequities in the market. And I believe that as we move into a digital economy, and we are clearly moving that way, that the advent of smartphones, along with digital platforms like PayPal, can bring more people into the economy and make it more inclusionary as opposed to having people outside looking in. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that happen, but I think this is a really essential element of making sure that the pandemic doesn't widen gaps, but actually forces us to think in innovative different ways and close some of those gaps. Dan, you're really getting to the core of what this podcast is all about. I saw you quoted earlier this year saying capitalism needs an upgrade. What exactly did you mean by that? You know, it was interesting when I said that I had just gotten some award from the Museum of Finance, some very big event on Wall Street. There's pretty much everybody there from the system (laughs) was in that room. And I got up to accept the award. And I basically said that I'm a big fan of capitalism, but like everything else, it needs an upgrade. And what I meant by that is that this idea of just counting on uh, market forces to create a just and equitable society isn't working. Uh, And I saw that firsthand within PayPal. You know, we pay at or above market rates in every place in the world that we hire individuals at PayPal. And we did a study and we looked at the net disposable income of our employees, which is like how much income do they have left over after they pay their taxes and essential living expenses. And what we found is that for our call center workers, our entry level workers, which is a large percentage of our workforce, their net disposable income was below 10%. And we feel like 20% is the bare minimum you need for somebody to have savings, to be able to not struggle to make ends meet at the end of the month. And we were paying at or above market rates. So clearly the market isn't working for a segment of our population. And I really felt like companies and those companies at that event, we had a obligation to measure how we're doing and serving our employees, and then to step up and to make sure that they had a sense of financial health. Because you can't have passionate employees on if every month they're worrying about how they're going to make ends meet. You were a student of economics, I believe, Dan. I was. You know there were people at that dinner when you said those words, and there's still people. I get emails from them once or twice a week who say, That's not your job. You're the CEO of PayPal. Your job is really simple. Maximize 
the profit for the shareholders of PayPal. And if people get left behind in that process, it's the government's job to take care of them. And you must hear that all the time, probably from business colleagues. Uh, uh, What do you say to that? I do hear that frequently. Listen, we all live in one big community together. I think that the foundation of our democracy rests upon some degree of financial health through all of our citizens. Why do I say that? There's a great quote around democracy that democracy needs to be more than two wolves and one sheep voting on what to have for dinner. So what that really means is that (laughs) democracy depends on people rising above their own self-interest, right? Thinking about the whole greater than the individual. But how does that happen when every single day you're worried about whether you're going to actually be able to pay your bills, whether you're worried about whether your kids will have a better life than you do? This is the first generation ever that believes that they won't have a better life than their parents. That is the American dream. That is what our democracy is based on. If you have a populace that is frustrated with the system because they don't think it's working for them, then I think you have very much what we're seeing in front of us right now, both on the left and the right, people who are very, very unhappy. And I think that undermines the very innings and foundations of our democracy. And so I think that the people who argue that profit and purpose are two separate things, I think don't really understand that they don't work against each other. In fact, I would argue if you don't have purpose, if you don't have values that support the purpose of your company, you can never attract the very best talent into your organization. And the very best talent is what assures that a company over the medium and long term can move from being a good company to a great company, an enduring company. And so I think it's just a matter of like, what is your framework for like, are you maximizing profits next quarter? Or are you building a, hopefully a great company over the the medium and long term. And that is what I think our shareholders expect from me and expect from PayPal. This would be a good time to dig into what you're really leaning into around some of these things. And there's a lot. I have a list here. We can't get to all of it. But we let's start with what's happened recently, which is your $530 million commitment to invest in underinvested communities. And the Optus deposit of $50 million is a big piece of it. Can you tell us a little bit about how the different pieces of that initiative are coming together? I know that you've designed it to have different aspects, long-term, short-term, and medium-term impacts. What was your thinking behind that? Initially, I thought, you know, we would get involved. We would give a couple of million dollars to uh, some nonprofits who are working so hard on the ground to help in this. And then after talking to a number of um, Black leaders across the country, they basically said, this needs to be a movement and not a moment. Um, because eventually you'll see some of the protests die out, but the problem will still be there. And you can't just condemn racism. You have to actually become, in my view, anti-racist, which in my definition is you need to be part of the fight to solve this injustice over the medium and the long term. And that's why we came up with this $530 million commitment, of which $30 million was here and now. 
like grants to black owned businesses that were impacted by COVID-19 that could not get a loan from anybody, but we're going to go out of business without a grant. And we helped 1,000, almost 1,200 black owned businesses survive for at least a little bit longer with these grants. And we did that within like two weeks of making our announcement. We were giving out grants uh, in partnership uh, with a nonprofit organization. We also funded a number of nonprofits right away who are doing incredible work to help Black-owned businesses, uh, Black and uh, underrepresented minority dominant communities. And then, you know, we looked inside our company as well, because we have still, even though we do a lot around inclusion, we have a lot of work to do ourselves to be representative of the communities we live in and the customers uh, that we serve. And then we put into place this $500 million economic opportunity fund to basically support black and minority owned businesses, black and minority communities to really do something that we felt we could do particularly, which is to help close the racial wealth gap, which is basically the same today as it was back in the last civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so that's where that $50 million investment in Optus came from. And we've uh, already started to give out of that fund. And, and one thing I would say both, Alan, to you and to you, Alan, is that we're going to be very transparent about what we do with this $530 million. And we're going to make mistakes for sure. And hopefully people will learn from some of those mistakes. And we're also going to have impact for sure. And hopefully others will be able to follow uh, and learn uh, from that as well. I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, CEO of Deloitte US. And Joe, we did a survey together that shows 60% of CEOs see lasting changes in the way customers are behaving. That's a real challenge for companies in thinking about how they engage their customers, isn't it? Alan, there's no doubt the events of the past few months are reshaping the world. Perhaps remote work has garnered most of the headlines, but it's also very clear that the way in which consumers behave their purchasing behaviors, their desire to engage in new ways virtually, much of that will stick. It doesn't go away when we move past the health crisis, which makes it critical that companies are driving a customer-focused technology strategy, investing in engaging customers digitally. And we certainly see that focus across our client base, that even as resources are scarce, investments in digital transformation are being prioritized. Uh, So there's some big changes in store in the coming months. There absolutely are. But again, these are opportunities to drive a much richer method of customer engagement, to leverage data, to apply advanced analytics and cognitive technologies, and ultimately drive higher levels of customer engagement. Fascinating. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Alan. So I'm going through this list here of things that you have taken a stand on. The bathroom bill in North Carolina, you pulled a plug on a pretty well-publicized operations center until they got themselves right. That was 2016. You banned customers for using your services, including peer-to-peer payments, to sell firearms. Not only that, you're investing in research, academic research, about how illegal gun trade happens, how to prevent it. I can go on and on and on here. Now you're focused on voting. Is that right? Could you tell us a little bit about what that looks like for you? 
Well, we were one of three founding companies, along with Levi's and uh, Patagonia, to create this initiative, Time to Vote, so that no employee would have to choose between, do I get a paycheck or should I vote? Because that shouldn't be a choice. And so the three of us started this. We all committed to give at least a half a day off for employees to be able to vote. You know, we now have closing in on a thousand plus companies uh, who have committed uh, to this. And I think not only are we giving time, but we're also inside PayPal now setting up seminars uh, mm. to talk about like, what does it mean to be part of this democracy? You know, what are the different positions that are out there so that people can not just vote, but be maybe even more educated of us as they go to the polls. Dan, you now have a thousand and one companies. I joined this morning, so I'm happy oh, to. But it's on behalf of Fortune, that's the right thing. To do. Uh, <laughs> but thank but you, let, Alan. Yes, but let me but let me ask you because every one of the issues, some people would say every one of the issues that Ellen mentioned, guns, transgender access to public bathrooms voting, easy access to voting is a partisan issue and you're taking sides in the election. People do say that. And I am very adamant about the way that I think about this and the way that I talk about this, that we are trying very hard not to take political stands, but to take values-based stands. Discrimination of any kind is not something that we stand for uh, as a company or that we stand for as a country. It's part of the values of our country and that pulling out of North Carolina was not a red issue or a blue issue. It was a red, white, and blue issue. And I said this in front of this uh, military community, and I remember a lot of people had their hands crossed, and I was worried about, like, you know, were they going to support? And they all got up and gave me a standing ovation. Wow. Not that they believed one way or another, not saying they believed that this was right or the wrong, but they did agree that America has values and that standing up for those values are something that we need to defend. Well, let me push that one step further because you were with Fortune in uh, December 2016 at the Vatican. In fact, it occurred to me, uh, Ellen and I talked to Chip Berg uh, recently for this podcast, and and he said he was the only person who had ever met the Pope in blue jeans. But it occurred to me, you might have had blue <laughs> jeans on there. <laughs> I am Chip's best customer. By far. <laughs> but, but putting the blue jeans aside... I believe you're one of the first CEOs. And, and look, I've been doing this for four decades now. I'm sorry to say it's it's been quite a while. I believe you're one of the first CEOs that I heard talking about the importance of moral leadership yeah. from business leaders. And that was not something I was accustomed to hearing before then. Can you talk about what that means and why that's important to you? Yeah. Listen, I don't think that we as leaders of companies can abdicate our responsibility. And our responsibility goes beyond just making money. I think we have a purpose and a profit motive together. And I, as I said, I think they go hand in hand. And I think although no one person or the government or a nonprofit can solve any one issue, we can't abdicate our responsibility and say, you know what, nonprofits, that's for you to go do, or the government, that's for you to go do. Because sometimes the government actually can't do it. They don't have the resources or they can't figure out a bipartisan compromise on something. But we as business leaders, I do think, have 
obligation. And as I've pointed out in my own view, it's only my own view, that we have a moral obligation to help address some of the ills that we face collectively in our society. And we have the wherewithal to go and do that. And I think this also involves difficult choices. Like one of the things that you didn't mention is we also have to figure out what sites can actually use PayPal or Venmo to raise money. And our acceptable use policy bans sites that either advocate violence, racial intolerance, or hatred. And it's somewhat easy to spot violence, although there's a lot of code words around it that you have to understand and know. But hatred is more of a judgment call. But I don't think we can abdicate our responsibility there either. I think we need to basically do our best to assure that our platform is used in accordance with our acceptable use policy of this. And those decisions do take courage. I mean, frequently um, I've gotten, as you know, multiple death threats, death threats from pulling out of North Carolina, death threats from shutting down some either far right or far left uh, sites that advocate violence. And these are things that, um, you know, my mom always asked me like, would you do that again, knowing that you had all those death threats? And, you know, I would do that time and time again. That is what it means to have moral conviction around uh, what you stand for. You know, just to follow up on that, I'm glad you mentioned your mom. I was reading a little bit about your background. Your parents sounded amazing. Your mother was a civil rights advocate and activist. Like Kamala Harris, you were at peace marches in your stroller. So it comes naturally to you, this understanding of the world, this framing, your moral imagination comes naturally to you. So I was curious how you would encourage anyone who is struggling who may be swayed by some of the ugly rhetoric. For example, the president just called companies supporting the Black Lives Matter movement weak, led by weak people. That's not the kind of rhetoric that you need to address, but anybody who may be unsure about how to weigh in, especially if they have a big platform. I I would say to my peers that if for nothing else, for competitive advantage, you need to have a set of values. Because what is the biggest sustainable advantage that a company has? I believe, at least, it's the passion and the talent of their workforce. Give me a talented, passionate, financially healthy, and secure workforce, and I will put that company up against anybody (laughs) and bet on them uh, to win. The best talent want to work someplace where they can make a difference in the world and that they can be proud of the company that they're working for. And I think values and stands demonstrate that to employees. Dan, you were doing stakeholder capitalism before it was a thing. You know, you 15, 20 years ago, working with Richard Branson, you guys were talking about the social impact of the business and the social purpose. It has become a thing. The business roundtable statement a year ago was probably a kind of a tipping point in that. Where do you think we are and where do you think we're going? I mean, is it serious? Obviously, it's serious for you, but your colleagues, the business community at large, and, and what's the trend? Well, what's really encouraging, people are having conversations about what it means to be a multi-stakeholder company. You know, I just got off a Verizon uh, board call right before this. 
we were talking about what are the four different communities that we serve from shareholders to customers to our communities to our employees and what comes first and how do you think about that and these are real conversations that are going on like i've come down that employees come first in this multi-stakeholder but part of the reason why i believe that is if again you have the best talent eventually you give the best return back to both your customers, because you have passionate employees trying to serve them. You have happy customers and regulators are happy. You know, you're serving them the best way. And then eventually that means that shareholders are better served than before. And I mean, I don't know if everything we're doing on this multi-stakeholder is directly correlated to the success that PayPal has had, but we've delivered great returns for shareholders in the yeah, last- we, we should point that out. Yeah. It's like, since the time you've taken over, the stock price has gone up, what, yeah. six times. Exactly. I mean, and I attribute a lot of that to being able to attract great talent. I think part of the issue when I came into PayPal versus we were losing a ton of talent. Um, we didn't really have a mission. We had a commoditized product. We we're trying to optimize that all of the time. And that's not a way to grow to be a great company. Now, some people would run the causation in the opposite direction. They'd say, well, you make a lot of money so you can afford to do good. But other companies that are struggling can't be as as big hearted as you are. Yeah, it wasn't always the case that we were doing well. <laughs> um, so and we had the, uh, the same uh, philosophy around this. I mean, we've had good shareholder returns over the last five years. But if you look at that first year after our IPO, we were basically flat to slightly down um, because we were making very hard decisions around our business model, about who we were going to be as a company, about investing back in our business to be able to unleash a new PayPal. You know, I remember days where we would announce something and our stock price would go down eight or nine percent. And I would tell the company and the board and I would have conversations that strategy and philosophy and values take time to play out. By the way, though, Alan, your point is a good one. Like, this is why this profit and purpose are like not at odds. First of all, I think you'll get more profit if you do purpose. But if you're focused on purpose and you're not generating profit, you're not going to be doing it for very long. So like this needs to be something that works hand in hand together. To the degree to which I understand political buzz, which isn't very much, there has been from time to time some buzz around you as a potential candidate for office. Is this something that you would ever consider? So there was definitely a, a time in my life when I was growing up where I was really interested in the potential of running for political office of some kind to the dismay of pretty much everybody around me. <laughs> um, you know, look, I, I'm very much of a patriot and I, I really want our country to be the best country it can possibly be. I feel like the role that I'm in right now is one that I can make a lot of very positive change and I'm really happy about that. But I would never rule out doing more for the country in one way or another. But I'm so happy here at PayPal and we're doing so many good things. And uh, for all of our constituencies, I have no intention or thought of leaving that anytime early. Dan, thanks for being with us. A really inspiring conversation. You are a model of what we're trying to explore here on this podcast. And I'm really glad you opened up with us. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. It's lovely to be with you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. 
written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 